This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. Well, we are right in the middle of a, a series called Seven Days. And it is asking the question, if you had seven days left to live, what would you do? Because the Bible itself spends quite a bit of time looking at the last seven days of Jesus' life. Uh, Over one quarter of Matthew, Luke, and John each look at the last Days. The uh, Cliff Notes version of the Gospel, Mark, actually spends half of its time in the last seven days of Jesus. And because the Bible spends so much time looking at those last seven days, to be honest with you, we could have done this series for a whole year. It is just that filled with, uh, with lessons and practical illustrations about what should matter to us. Because that's really what Jesus is showing us in that last week. And we are aiming for the trajectory of this series lands next Sunday where we will look at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as we celebrate Easter. How many of you all know Easter is a pretty big day, right? That's a pretty big day. Without Easter, we don't have what we've been talking about the whole time. And because of that, because we live in a country and a culture where that understanding kind of permeates, that's why most of the churches in our county will double in attendance next Sunday. Isn't that crazy? That the church that's normally 70 is going to be 150 next week. That's remarkable, folks. And for us, right, we have friends, and we've talked about this so much. We have friends that are on the fringe of life. When it comes time to call a pastor to do a funeral in their family, the funeral director ends up calling whoever's available because they're, they don't go to church Right, we know those people. Those people are in our lives. And that's why in the back of your worship guide today, we gave you invitations to hand out. I, I love this week I heard stories of some of you so excited about inviting your friends and your family and your coworkers to be a part of our church services. So excited about that. You handed out all of them and then handed out all your friends and then handed out all your other friends' invitations. So we put uh, a little bit more back there this week so you can hand them out. Now, I don't know if you've been watching the news lately. There's a story about a, a little girl, and uh, I, I think this is an example of the way that an invitation could go. Um, a little girl was given an assignment to do a book report. You may have heard this already, but she was given the assignment to do a book report, and the teacher gave them the option that they could do a written report or an oral presentation because, you know, in school we're working on oral skills and all that kind of stuff, speaking in front of people. And so she opted to do an oral presentation, bold Christian witness on the book of Jonah. 
All right, you, if you don't know anything about the book of Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah is about a grown man who runs away from a nation that God called him to go to, and he is thrown overboard in the middle of the sea, swallowed by a whale, spit up on the shore of the nation that he was running away from, and ends up proclaiming a message of hope, and the whole nation repents. Right? Remarkable book. We're actually going to preach a series on that in May called The God of Second Chances. All right? But in this uh, moment, this girl chose to do her book report on Jonah. And uh, her teacher, however, was not a believer. Right? So she gets done with the, the book report, the oral presentation. And the, the teacher goes, whoa, i got to stop you. Do you really believe that nonsense? Do you really believe that a grown man can be swallowed by a whale, spit up on the shore of a country that he's running from? Do you really believe that? The little girl in all of her young wisdom said, I mean, it sounds pretty far-fetched. And I guess when I get to heaven, I could actually go over to Jonah and say, Jonah, that really happened. That really happened. I mean, did you get swallowed by a whale? And the teacher, thinking that she was going to be very smart and outwit her, said, well, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? The little girl stared back at her and said, well, then you can ask him. (laughs) Ah, that is not the kind of invitation we want to give this week, okay? That's not the invitation that we want to give. We want to be life-giving and invite people that are far away. Let me give you the target audience for people that we want to invite to come to church with us next week. People who are far away from God right now. I'm not talking about people who have at past been involved with churches or whatever, but people who we know are far away from God right now. All right, that's where we are going next week. We're going to be going into that last weekend of Jesus' life. But tonight or this morning, I really want to zero in on the last moment that Jesus spends with his friends. It's the last meal that he would eat. And so we're going to zoom in this week to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so that we can eat it together. I just feel like it's necessary to explain to you what's happening in Jewish rabbinical tradition at this point. Now, there are two feasts that they just mentioned. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which actually is a feast that was designed around understanding sin. All right, they would eat a bread that they called matzah, which was made without yeast. It's like, basically like a cracker. All right, it's pretty gross, to be honest with you. I've had this stuff before. And, and the reason that they would is that it, it was a reminder of how sin is like yeast. When it gets into the bread, it just spreads. And so they would eat this, and they would go through this festival of unleavened bread. But at the same time, uh, kind of overlapping, was the Passover, a remembrance of the time during the exodus out of Israel when God commissioned a death angel to kill the firstborn sons in all of Israel because the Pharaoh would not let the Hebrew slaves go. And as a sign to the Hebrews, God said, if you will take the blood of a sacrifice and paint it over the door, 
that angel will fly over your home and leave your sons untouched. And they did, and they celebrated the Passover from year to year. And Jesus is, as he is beginning to go into this last moment, going to celebrate what was the combination of the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's pick up again in verse 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Now, some of you might actually be reading from a version that says that they reclined at the table. All right? This is one of those things that's so so interesting because as a sign of being a free man, right, they would not eat that meal standing up. They would eat it laying down, right? Here is biblical precedent to lay down in front of the TV and eat dinner tonight, all right? Some of you might not want to share this with your kids, right? Because that's exactly, and, and as, as someone who had to sit at a table, the perspective was that that was for a slave. So they reclined when they took the meal in verse 14. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Therefore, he took a cup of wine. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks for it. And he said, this, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks for it. And then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine. He took another cup of wine and said this cup is a new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood which is poured out as a sacrifice to you now I don't know about you but when I took communion growing up one piece of bread one cup that familiar to you right did you notice something in there how many times did Jesus take a cup in there? It was a couple times, right? It's not just once. And if you go back through tradition, actually through what's called the Jewish Seder, the rabbinical tradition of how the Passover meal was to be celebrated, there's something going on there that I think we've missed. And I want to point it out to you today because I think it is really, really important for us to understand what's happening in the Passover. See, as they celebrated the Passover, there would not just be one cup, but there would be four cups that would be passed. Four different cups in the order of the Passover meal. Four different times that a cup would be passed. And each cup had a purpose. Each cup had a name. It was there to show us something about God's plan. And Jesus said, I've been eager to share this meal with you. One more week to go. That's all I've got. My time with you was pretty limited. One more week and I've been eager to share this meal. I would submit to you that there's something hidden inside the message of those cups for us today. 
that there's a plan that God has put in place. And it's nothing new, actually. To be honest with you, if you go through Church 101 and we talk about the four purposes of our church, they would be anchored in the four purposes that God is giving in the cups. Let's go back to Exodus 6. This is where the meaning of all of those cups is really derived out of. Exodus chapter 6. Therefore say to the people of Israel, beginning in verse 6, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and will rescue you from your slavery in Egypt. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and great acts of judgment. I will claim you as my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from your oppression in Egypt. You see, for the traditional celebration of that Passover meal, they would take all the meaning of those four cups out of that one simple passage. The first cup that was passed was called the cup of sanctification. Now that's a big word. The cup of sanctification. And it would anchor out of verse 6 where it says, I will free you from oppression. I will, I will bring freedom into your life. We understand that now as salvation. God coming and freeing us from the bondage of sin. And early in the Passover meal, a cup would be passed. To remember that we were at one time in Egypt and God got us out of Egypt. The second cup was called the cup of deliverance. The cup of deliverance which was anchored in verse 6 where it says, I will rescue you from the slavery that you've experienced in Egypt. The reality here is that there are slaves all around us that are not indentured servants to another man, but perhaps to sin. And Jesus, in his wisdom as he is celebrating, passes a second cup. This is actually believed. When it, the first cup that's documented in Luke 22 is really expected because of the order to be the second cup that Jesus was passing. The third cup that was passed was called the cup of redemption. In the end of verse 6, at the end of verse 6, the Bible says, I will redeem you. God speaking to those. And the word redeem means to be brought back to its original value. To be brought back to its original purpose. And see, God is saying in that moment, I will redeem you. And if you put it in context of that moment to Israel, you were not created to be slaves. You were not created to be the free workforce for a nation that doesn't believe in me. You were not created for this purpose. And so I will save you. I will deliver you because I'm going to bring you back to the original purpose. When Jesus comes to that point where he says this is the cup of a new covenant, that is the cup 
of redemption that he is passing. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, he's going to be arrested. That he's going to be tried as a criminal. That the Roman government is not going to find any reason to execute him. And so he is going to be turned over to local authorities who at the urging of a crown, ex- crowd execute him on a cross. Jesus knows that blood is about to be spilled and that the work to bring us back to our original position is about to be done. The last cup, and it makes sense that this would be the last cup if you've already drank three cups of wine, right? I'm going to guess that the fourth cup would be called the cup of praise. Because I'm going to guess by the time you've already had three three of them things, by the time you get to the fourth one, you're going to be ready to praise, right? I mean, might, maybe go to sleep or something, I don't know. But the cup of praise, the word that is used in the Hebrew to describe that is the cup of hallel. It's the beginning of the word hallelujah. The word hallel in the Hebrew means to make a clamorous boast about God. To be loud and boisterous. And so this party was not a tame party. By the time they got done with it, they were expected to have walked through the realization that they were in bondage. God brought them out. He delivered them from the slavery that they were in. Now he has redeemed them and brought them back to their original purpose. And so what's left to do but to praise? You see, there is in that right there something that I think is very important for us to see today. And it's this. This is in your notes today. That the Scriptures contain more than history. The Bible holds within it a grand invitation to know and experience the God that the Bible points itself towards. Those aren't just four cups that look backwards. See, if we just think about it, remembering something that's happened, we miss the point of why Jesus in one of his last moments chooses to have a Passover meal with his followers. Because Scripture invites us not just into history, but into a a story that God has allowed us to know him and to experience him. So when we read about the Exodus and the children of Israel who come to the edge of the Red Sea and they look back and they see the army of the Egyptians breathing down their necks and they know we can do absolutely nothing to rescue ourselves right now. There are going to be times in our lives that we're going to come to our own Red Sea. God, you pointed me this way. Why? I I don't understand what's happening now. I can't do anything. I can't change this, God. I've tried hard. I've done all I can. So when that Red Sea parts, it's not just history. 
It's an invitation to know a God that can deliver us from the undeliverable. Maybe you remember when Peter, in the middle of a storm, sees Jesus coming to him, walking on the water, and Jesus calls out to him and says, Come to me, Peter. And Peter gets out of the boat, steps on the waves, and walks on the water towards Jesus. Sometimes, God is going to invite us into a story that doesn't make any sense. And to obey Him means getting out of a boat in the middle of a storm. And when we see Peter make that move to the edge and step over the bow, we see a God who can take us through a storm when He's called us to go there. When you see a shepherd bringing his brother's lunch to the front lines of a battle where across the field a giant is yelling insults. Insulting the God of a shepherd boy. And he says, I can't have any more of that. I can't. I don't need your armor. I don't need your sword. Just give me a slingshot. And if he kills me, it's all right. And he goes out. And a a shepherd boy kills the greatest warrior from one of the largest armies in context with the Israelites. Think about that. It is not just history. It's an invitation for us to know that when we face giants, God is strong enough in us to kill them. The Bible is an invitation into a story where we can know and experience the God of the Bible. And far too many of us know Him but have never experienced Him. We might know a lot of facts. We might know it. But I'm telling you, the Bible is an invitation. And as Jesus opens up this Passover meal, it is an invitation for us to experience God. Let's go back through the cups and let me tell you what I see that God is sharing with us in there. The first cup that was passed was the cup of sanctification. The cup that says, you are going to break out of this. I'm going to get you out of this mess. I'm going to work to start to set you apart. The first thing that I see in there is that God will save me. God will save me. And let's get this right. God saves us from messes that we make. It's not just like life happened. Or God, you put me in this place, now you got to get me out. No, God saves us from messes that we make. That He looked down and gave us 
free will gave us one simple rule. Don't eat from that bush, right? It sounds pretty simple. We blew it. So we live in a world that is filled with sin, that is filled with mess. And God will save us. Romans 10, 9 says this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The second cup that was passed was the cup of deliverance. And in that I see that God will set me free. God will set me free. You see, that first cup in the promise of God saving us is instantaneous, but the getting set free thing, that's not always that quick. The truth is, is that the nation of Israel walked across on dry land to the other side of that Red Sea, but they carried with them sinful rituals and attitudes that it took 40 years for God to work out. In the midst of one of the best, brightest, most obvious miracles is God descended on top of a mountain and wrote down on stone tablets His Ten Commandments. In the midst of that moment, those people who had been enslaved in Israel built their own idols, began to worship them in the presence of a God who had descended on a mountain. God will deliver you. And he will do whatever it takes to get that out of you. Look at this. Romans 8, 1 and 2. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, Listen to this. The power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. That sin no longer has its hold on you. That God has ransomed you. He has set you free. And as that third cup was passed, the cup where Jesus actually said, this is the cup of a new covenant, I see in there that God will set me apart. God will set me apart. There's a nagging feeling that all of us live with. It's completely inescapable until this has been resolved. And it's the feeling that there must be more to life than what I'm doing right now. I don't care how much money you make. 
I don't care what your family looks like from the outside. Until you have got into a position where God has come into your life, where He has saved you, He has set you free, and now He is setting you apart. And I'm not talking about like an a trophy on a case. I'm talking about like a tool in a toolbox where God has got you into a position where now He can use you. Where you are keenly aware of the plan that God has for your life. How He has designed you and purposed you and planned for you to make an eternal impact in the life of other people. And when you get there, that voice that's been nagging you and saying things like, there's got to be more than this somehow in the back of our minds as God speaks to us and the Holy Spirit leads us, it goes, ah, this is it. This is that space. 1 Peter 2.9 says, you are royal priests, a holy nation. God's very own possession. As a result, as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. What God has done to you was not simply meant to be done to you. It was meant to be done through you so that you could bless other people, so that you could impact other people, so that other people would be transformed by the Jesus that's alive inside of you. And that last cup, cup of praise, where everybody was lit, right? They already drank three cups of wine. Here comes the fourth one. Yeah, I see that God will love you forever. See, the thing is, if you know a lot about God, but you've never experienced God, you have never gotten here. You've never known a God that just loves you. Because it's not just about sitting back and learning the ins and outs. It's about experiencing what we know. You see, when we hit that Red Sea moment and the sea parts. And we walk across on dry land because some of us have been in Egypt and we need that sea to part. And only God can part it. You see, when that happens, we're experiencing God's love. He will love you forever. Psalm 136. If you ever really question the love of Jesus, if you're struggling with thinking about does God love me right now, I would encourage you to break out your Bible and turn it to Psalm 136 because all throughout this psalm, as it walks through, it just walks through life. It opens and then gives us continual frame. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love 
endures forever. You see, as Jesus was coming to the end of that first week, as that moment is emerging, as Jesus is trying to leave a lasting impression on His followers, He takes them through this meal because this meal is a perfect example of what God wants to do in your life and in mine. And it's an invitation to surrender. It's an invitation to stop trying to make it work. It's an invitation to stop trying to rescue myself. It's an invitation to get out of the Red Sea and stop swimming. Because the only thing that Jesus wants for us in all of that is for us to look at Him and go, I'm done. I'm done. Trying to do it my way, I'm done. Trying to do what I want to do, I'm done with that, God. I'm in my own Egypt right now, God. I need you to bring me out. I can't do it because only you can save me. Only you can deliver me. Only you can redeem me. And ultimately, only you can love me forever. Now next Sunday, we're going to bring all of this into one service. The last week of Jesus encapsulated in an hour and 15 minutes as we share together and experience the love of God that was poured out in the death, burial, and resurrection. And we're going to open next week with communion. And I want to give you a challenge. It's not my challenge. It's actually one that the Bible gives us. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight says this. You should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. The Bible goes on to say that if we take the cup while we're actually living in sin, we actually heap condemnation on us. Now, if you've ever read that verse and you don't understand what we talked about today, it's a little confusing. But if you get to that point where you drink of a cup that talks about a God that's going to redeem you, set you apart for a purpose, and you're going, no, I'm going to live it my own way. That makes sense. Because what God wants from us is for us to surrender. Let's pray. God, as we today pause, as we pause in a moment to think about and reflect on the invitation to step into this story, to know a God that will save us. To know a God that will deliver us. To know a God that will redeem us and love us forever. 
Many of us today, God, are still in our own versions of Egypt. So, you loved us. Even before we ever understood what love is, even before we ever tried to love, even before we ever breathed, you loved us. And you laid your life down so that we could be brought back to you. And so today, God, some of us have to just get to a point where we surrender our plan. Where we surrender doing it our own way. Some of us, God, need to surrender from fighting against what is inevitably only going to be you. And we need to stop trying to swim the Red Sea and get out and let you part it. Some of us need to surrender a way of thinking about you that is only about knowing more. We need to step into a relationship with you that allows us to experience the truth. So with nobody looking around right now, every eye closed, every head bowed, let me ask you a question. Are you ready to surrender? Are you ready to surrender to a God who is more than capable right now of saving you, delivering you, redeeming you, and loving you forever? Are you ready to surrender to that God? Maybe today you're in your own version of Egypt. Maybe today you're struggling. Maybe today you're out. You, you, you're that Christian. You've already stepped to take a, a, a step towards Jesus, but you, you have not surrendered to him. The Bible calls that making him the Lord of our lives, laying down our will, our plan, so that we can embrace God's plan. Are you ready to surrender today? If you are, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. I'm not going to ask you to get up and move. I'm not going to ask you to do anything except to put your hand up between you and Jesus. If you're ready to surrender today, if you're ready to look into the heart of God and say, I'm done trying to do this on my own, right now, put your head up. That's you. Hands up. Awesome. Is there anybody else? Anybody else? So God, today, for those people that are here, those people who have said, I've been trying to do this my way. I've just been trying to 
go after doing this thing on my own. But they are willing to surrender to you today. God, come and do what only you can do. Come and save them. Come and redeem them. God, come and love them in a way that they've never experienced so that by your grace and mercy, they can grow. Not just to know you, but to experience that love. In the name of Jesus. Amen. How about a clap for those people that just made that decision?